We are continuing John chapter 8. We're going through the Gospel of John. And um, John chapter 8, as I mentioned, the last two lessons, there are, there are three parallels that Jesus talks about here. It talks about in the Gospel, light versus darkness. We talked about that two lessons ago. And then uh, last Sunday about freedom versus slavery. And, and today, the third one is about truth versus lies or in particular, the one who tells the truth versus the one who always tells lies. So I want to take a look at that. And of course, the one who tells lies all the time, the liar and the father of lies is Satan. So that's, a, that's the third big contrast. Uh, I want to read the whole passage. We're going to focus, last lesson we ended in John 8.36. So we're going to cover verses 37 to 50. But because the ideas don't break evenly along the lines where, where we break our lessons, I'm going to back up a little bit just to get the whole idea in, in starting in verse 33. So I'm going to read verses 33 to 50 in John chapter 8. If you can read along with me, I'm reading from the New King James. <clears throat> so, John chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 33. They answered him, We're Abraham's descendants that have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Verse 37, I know you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear because you're not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. We'll stop, stop there for 
what we're going to cover today. So there's a rather heated argument that's taking place between Jesus and the Jews he's speaking to. And the Jews start off by saying, well, Abraham's our father. And Jesus says, well, you are descended from Abraham, but you're not really Abraham's children. You're actually nothing like him. And, and the Jews, he tells the Jews they're acting just like their father. And so first they said our father's Abraham, then they said our father's God. And uh, he says, if God was your father, he says, God isn't your father. If God was your father, you would love me because I came from God. And then he tells them that they're following their true father, who is the devil. He's saying they are sons of Satan, and they want to do just what their father does. He says, you're just like your father, the devil. And he was a murderer from the beginning. They want to murder him. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, he starts off, he's a liar. He lies to Eve. God's trying to keep you down. If you, if you eat of the fruit, you'll become just like God. So he lies, and he's a murderer. He brought death into the world through leading people astray. Uh, as God had told the man, that uh, if in the day that they ate of the fruit, that that would bring death into their lives. So um, he, he concludes by saying, you don't hear me because you're not of God. And he says, I honor the Father, but you dishonor me. So this is the, this is the argument that's going back and forth. Uh, Jesus says a number of very rather insulting things to his enemies here. This is a side of Jesus. There are many sides of Jesus. This is one side of Jesus. He's, he's called the great physician. And here he's offering strong medicine. And I think of strong medicine like major amputation of limbs here. So this is, this is very strong and powerful medicine. This is very insulting what he's saying. He says, these are Jews who are priding themselves that they are descendants of Abraham. And he says, well, you are physically descendants, but you're nothing like him. He says, you're murderers, you're liars. Uh, he says, you can't find any sin in me. Uh, he says, you're not of God. And then he says, you are sons of the devil and behave just like your father, Satan. So, I mean, can you think of anything more insulting or offensive that Jesus could possibly say to his opponents? He doesn't just say you're wrong. He says you are just like your father, the devil, your murderers and liars, just like he was. You have nothing to do with God. You're nothing like Abraham. So other than that, have a great day. So, <laughs> And they respond with the biggest insult that they can come back with. You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. That's what you are. So same back at you. So they go after him as well. So this is, this is basically, there is just no connection here. They're both really, really uh, 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 coming on very strong against each other on both sides. And... Uh, but he, he doesn't just say, you're bad people. He says, you are sons of the devil. You're sons of Satan. And so and in the course of this, Jesus talks about the nature of Satan. He's a liar. 
There's no truth in him. He's a murderer from the beginning. And uh, so, so he, Jesus brings Satan into the discussion here and talks about the character of Satan. I think in the Gospel of John, I think this is the first place that Jesus has talked about Satan when he's, he's doing it in, in a discussion with his opponents. Um, a lot of people have a hard time with the idea of Satan being a, a living being not just a symbol of evil. Now, I'll give you, give you an idea. What, I'll give you, ask you a question. What percent of, of all the people in the United States who would consider themselves to be Christians, these are people who say, I'm a Christian, what percentage of them do you think believe that Satan is a real being, not just a figurative representative of evil in the world, but that Satan is an actual real being who, who, is, who is out there with a personality trying to, to cause evil in the world. What percentage of you think, well, this is right in the Bible. You just you read any of the Gospels and it talks about Satan having a conversation with Jesus. You don't have to get, you know, here we are in John chapter 8, and he talks about Satan is a liar, he's a murderer. This isn't some general force of evil he's talking about here. And he has sons, he has descendants. So, uh, what percentage do you think of Christians? It's four, it was 40%. So that's pretty scary. You think of uh, 60, most of the people, almost two-thirds of the people who call themselves Christians don't believe that there is a personal uh, a being called Satan who, who brings evil in the world, not just a symbol of evil. It comes to mind to me, we just had a couple weeks ago, it was Halloween. This is the big uh, uh, festival of cult. Here we are in Massachusetts, so right down the road we have Salem, Massachusetts, which of every, every city in the country, that's like the headquarters for Halloween. Stay away from Salem. One of the guys at my job, uh, was he just moved into the Boston area and he said, wow, I really want to visit Salem right around the time, the week or so before Halloween, because I hear that's really an exciting place to be. And I just kind of see people shaking your heads because you lived here and you know what goes on in Salem. It's a very dark place where Satan, witches, and witchcraft are taken very, very seriously. And my friend didn't think it was serious. He thought it was like a big joke. The other thing is there are lots of jokes about Satan. I think that's one of the reasons why so many people don't believe in Satan, including Christians, is because of the characterizations that they see in the media, in cartoons even, about Satan, in uh, you know, the little trick-or-treaters, the kids going around with Satan outfits on. Uh, there are a lot of jokes about Satan. Satan is typically portrayed as just kind of a troublemaker with a red suit, horns, and a pitchfork. This is the classic representation of Satan. So there's a reason why people don't take it seriously because I think they're reacting against the caricature rather than what the Bible actually says. Now, why does it matter if we believe in Satan or not? Now, I want to give you, uh, this is a conversation I had, very, I had a very serious conversation. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, uh, preaching a lesson in another church, and uh, after the lesson was over, there were a couple people who came up to me who were... Uh, from China, and they had a lot of questions. They were wrestling with the scriptures. They had a lot of really, really basic, deep questions. And one of the deepest questions, it was a woman who grew up in Tibet. 
So when she was explaining that she grew up in a rural area and everybody that she knew, pretty much, were Tibetan Buddhists. And then she, in her education, she moved on and she went to the big city in China and she saw a lot of things there that she found very disturbing. There was a lot of evil. There was suffering. She saw people were, were suffering things that she hadn't seen when she was living in a rural area. And it really disturbed her deeply. And when she bent back to Tibet and asked her friends, why is this? Why is there so much, so many bad things? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And her Tibetan Buddhist friends gave her an explanation. She was explaining this to me because she was throwing this back out at me. If, and basically, it's the question, if God is really good and all-powerful, why is there so much suffering in the world that's taking place? And why are so many good people really suffering terribly? And uh, <clears throat> the, the explanation that she was given by her Tibetan Buddhist friends was... Uh, they say, well, Buddhism uh, comes out of, uh, Buddha was from India, as, uh, as, as many people know. It's not a Chinese religion. It's a, it's a religion that came out of India. And, uh, but there are many different variations of Buddhism and different theories about it. But the, the explanation she was given by her Tibetan Buddhist friends was, well, the reason why people are suffering in this life, it has to do with things from their previous life. So there is a, it's not like, they don't believe the same thing as Hindus do, but there's a form of, of the idea that you're, 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 there's a form of, of some type of reincarnation or your, 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 your soul coming back, your spirit coming back. And so the idea was, well, if somebody's suffering now, it must be because in the previous life, they'd done something that got them in this bad situation. And that was the explanation, and she listened to that, and she thought, you know, that makes a certain amount of sense. That explains the reason for suffering. And I thought, you know, that's a nice, neat answer. It, 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 it's an explanation. It ties up the loose ends. So there's a certain consistency in it, that there is justice in the world, that these people who are suffering are getting justice for something they did beforehand. Um, <clears throat> But I thought about it, I say, you know, I see a few problems with that, that theory uh, right off the bat. I said, for one thing, you know, there are a lot of really good people who are suffering. It's not that these people are born with rotten characters and they've got to work it out. There's some really nice people, uh, really kind and loving people who are facing horrible situations. And the same time, there are some really wicked people that were born in the lap of luxury and are having a life of ease. And even in the Old Testament, David is talking about this. This has always been the case. So that doesn't seem to fit. The other thing I said was, you know, if you really believe that if somebody is going through a, a horrible life uh, because, because of something they did in the past life that they're having to pay for right now, I said, what's your attitude going to be towards that person? If you see somebody who's suffering, What's your attitude going to be? Good. Well, they're just getting what they deserve, so on I can go in life. So, so guess what that produces in the world? There's a lot of produces. That belief produces a lot of uncaring, indifferent people because you see somebody suffering. The attitude is, well, 
They must have, they must have done something to deserve it, but I must be a pretty good person. On the other hand, I must have been really good because I'm not suffering like they are. So this is, this is the fruit of that, that kind of life. And I mean, maybe this explains why so many of the hospitals and orphanages and so many of the wonderful things that have been done throughout history have been done at the initiative of Christians because we don't look at it that way. If somebody's suffering, our attitude is God loves them, and if we're going to be the hands and, and feet of God, then we need to do something to help them out. That's what, that's what Jesus taught, and that's what uh, John the Baptist taught. That's what the Bible teaches, that if you see your brother in need, you go and you help him out. Uh, you don't look down on him, as the far from it. Um, and then she, so she said, well, what do the Christians believe? How do you explain that? So I'm glad you asked because actually we're the only people that have the full and correct answer to this question, why there's suffering in the world. Uh, so I, I hope that when people ask you this question, you're equipped and prepared to answer it. So I went back to the story of the book of Job. And Job was a blameless and upright man. He was a very, very good man. And Satan comes to him. Let's turn to Job chapter, chapter 1. In, uh, in Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land, I'm reading from the uh, uh, verse version based on the Septuagint for the Old Testament. And there was a man in the land of Ossetus, and, and some translation will say land of Uz, whose name was Job. The man was true, blameless, righteous, and God-fearing, abstained from every evil thing. So uh, what more can you say about him? He's a, he's a, he's a great man, <clears throat> greatest man in the East. And uh, in verse 6 it says, Then it so happened one day, behold, the angels of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And the devil also came with them. And the Lord said to the devil, Where did you come from? So the devil answered and said to the Lord, I came here after going about the earth and walking around under heaven. The Lord said to him, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless, true, and God-fearing man one who abstains from every evil thing. So the devil answered him and said to the Lord, Does Job worship God, the Lord for no reason? Have you not made a hedge around him and his household and around all he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his cattle have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has and see if he'll bless you to your face. Then the Lord said to the devil, Behold, whatever he has I give into your hand, but don't touch him. Thus the devil went out from the Lord. And I think we're familiar with the rest of the story. What happens here is that God, Satan says, no wonder he loves you. You put a hedge around him. You protected the man. I can't touch him. But if he was suffering, he, he only loves you because you're treating him well. But if things went bad, he'd curse you. He'd reject you and abandon you. And God says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll remove the hedge, I'll remove the protection, and, and you can take those things away from him, but you can't take his life. And then in chapter 2, uh, so everything, including Job's children, is taken away from him in, in the rest of chapter 1. Chapter 2 in verse 1, then 
Again, it so happened another day, the angels of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the devil also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to the devil, where did you come from? Then the devil said before the Lord, I've come from walking around under the earth and going about all the earth. The Lord said to the devil, have you considered my servant Job since there's none like him on the earth? An innocent, true, blameless, and God-fearing man, and one who abstains from every evil thing. Moreover, he still holds fast to his integrity, though you have told me to destroy his possessions without cause. The devil answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Whatever a man has, he'll pay in full for his life. Yet truly, stretch out your hand and touch his bones and his flesh and see if he'll bless you to your face. So the Lord said to the devil, Behold, I'll give him over to you, only spare his life. And the devil went out from the Lord and struck Job with malignant sores from head to foot. So he took a potsherd to scrape away the discharge and sat on a dunghill outside the city. <clears throat> so, we see here that Satan is attacking and assaulting the righteous people on the face of the earth. That it's not just God and us, that there is another being who's at play here, Satan. We'll take a little more look at where he came from and the significance of Satan. But if you want to understand suffering, why righteous people in the world are suffering, we see a classic example of this right here, that there is another being in the world. People say, well, if God is all is all powerful and all good, why is there any suffering? Well, because there's someone else who's at work here as well. Um, so let's take another look at Satan. The first thing I want to take a look at is the importance of Satan, of understanding Satan. You know, most, most people who believe in, in, the, in Jesus, who call themselves Christians, don't even believe there's a personal being like Satan. But let's look at what the New Testament says about not just the existence of Satan, but the importance of Satan and his role in everything going on. 1 John chapter 3, let's read verse 8. says, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So why did Jesus come into the world? What is the gospel? It says, for this reason the Son of God was manifested, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came here on a mission to destroy Satan and his work. This is a passage we've looked at recently, but I, I love it so much I want to look at it again. Acts chapter 26. This is Jesus himself giving the commission to Paul. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is speaking to King Agrippa and telling the story of his own conversion and the mission that Jesus personally gave him. And he recounts what Jesus said to him. Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 17. 
Jesus said to Paul, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. They may may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this is evangelism. This is the mission, turning people from the power of Satan to the power of God. If you don't believe in and understand the work of Satan, you don't understand and appreciate why Jesus came into the world and what the mission is that he's given us. It's to turn people from the power of Satan to the power of God, not just to receive the forgiveness of sins. Let's turn to Luke chapter 11. This is another situation where, just like in John chapter 8, in Luke 11, uh, Jesus is being criticized. And in fact, in, in this account here, in Luke chapter 11, Start reading in verse 14. People are accusing Jesus. Jesus is casting out demons. And they're accusing him, believe it or not, of doing that by the power of Satan. They're admitting he's casting out demons, but it's saying you're using black magic, using the occult. You're doing this by the power of Beelzebub. So in, in Luke chapter 11, verse 14, and... So I want us to think about how Jesus describes what he's here for, what his mission is in in his defense. In Luke 11, starting verse 14, And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, saw from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely... The kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him and takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters." So let's think about what Jesus says. For one thing, he says, if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? So what does that tell you about Satan? Jesus says Satan has a kingdom. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, one of the things that Satan said was, I have all the kingdoms of the earth, and I'll give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus didn't say... You don't have all the kingdoms of the earth. He knows that Satan has a kingdom, just like he has a kingdom. He's bringing the kingdom of God into what is the kingdom of darkness. If Satan's divided himself against himself, how will his kingdom stand? So Satan has a unified kingdom. 
And then he gives the picture here. It's a beautiful picture of what his role is. He says, when a strong man, this is like a little little, uh, parable he's telling. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. Who's the strong man? It's Satan. (coughs) Satan is over his kingdom and he has his own palace. When a strong man fully armed guards his own... This is a picture of Satan. Strong man fully armed. I think of Goliath in this story. You know, he was a scary character. He's a big guy, strong man, fully armed for battle. Guarding his own palace. He says, but when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Satan is the strong man. Who is the stronger man who comes to defeat the strong man? And to to defeat him and to plunder his palace, his castle. That's Jesus. He is the stronger man. And what are the goods that the possessions of the strong man in his palace that he won't let go of unless he's overpowered? That's his subjects. That's people. That's souls. That's his captives. So Jesus says, I am the stronger man who's going to destroy the strong-armed man and I will plunder his kingdom. That's what I'm here for. So if you don't understand about Satan and his purpose, how can you possibly understand the mission of Jesus? This is how he described it himself. Now, question I have is, if Satan is so central to the story of why Jesus came into the world, the Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. And he's mentioned throughout the New Testament. He's all over the Gospels and the book of Revelation and and then the letters. He's all over. He's everywhere. Why is there so little belief in Satan today in the Christian world? And why is there so little discussion about Satan in most churches? What happened? There's a reason why most Christians don't really believe in Satan is because they're not taught about it. Why? What's the reason? And I don't know. On one level, maybe it's a reaction against the characterization of Satan, the mischaracterization of Satan. Another thing, I think Satan has blinded people. If Satan can make people believe that he doesn't exist, every time something bad happens, who are people going to blame? They're going to blame God. If people believe this is just me and God, that's it. I'm a free person, and I just need my sins forgiven so that I can be with God. If that's all they believe... If Satan's not part of the picture, everything's, every time a disaster happens, it must be God, right? So I think this is part of Satan's strategy in our part of the world is to get people to not believe that he exists so we can blame God for everything. <clears throat> Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. It's one of my favorite passages and the scriptures regarding Satan that Jesus spoke. In Luke, Luke chapter 10, read verses 17 and 18. 
So then this, this Jesus sends out the 70, and uh, they come back. Uh, they're all excited. Verse 17 says, The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's like, whoa, what is that all about? It says, look, you know, you, you see, you're, 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 you're excited that the demons are submitting to you. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What is he talking about? Is there something in the Old Testament that talks about Satan falling from heaven? Uh, whatever it was, does that mean Satan was in heaven and, he, and he, he came out of heaven? Where did Satan come from? Jesus is talking about, I think Jesus is talking about the origins of Satan, that he was around in the beginning when Satan was cast out. <clears throat> Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, I'm going to read verses 12 to 17. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, who rose up in the morning. He who sends for all the nations is crushed to the earth. For you said in your mind, I will ascend to heaven. I'll place my throne above the stars of heaven. I'll sit on a lofty mountain, on the lofty mountains toward the north. I will ascend above the clouds. I will be like the Most High. But now you shall descend to Hades, to the foundations of the earth. Those who see you will marvel at you, and they'll say, This is the man who greatly upset the earth, who shook kingdoms. And who made all the inhabited world a desert. He destroyed its cities and did not set free those who were captive. So speaking of Lucifer, which I think most of us would recognize as another name for Satan, and it talks about him falling from heaven and being cast down to the earth. It appears to me like he's in whatever he's involved in the sin of pride. It said he exalted himself and he wanted to be like the Most High and was cast down. Let's also turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. <coughs> Starting in verse 11, this is, a, this is an amazing passage of Scripture which a number of the early Christian writers talk about, and uh, they say, ask yourself the question, could this have applied to any human king that ever lived? Think about what it says here. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the ruler of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord and Master, You are a seal of remembrance and a crown of beauty. You were the luxury of the paradise of God, adorned with every good stone, sardis, topaz, emerald, and diamond, sapphire, jasper, silver, and gold, stone of Liguria, agate, amethyst, chrysolite, beryl, and onyx. You filled your treasuries and your storehouses with gold from the day you were created. I appointed you to be with the cherub 
I set you on the holy mountain of God. You were in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your days from the day you were created until wrongs were found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you filled your secret rooms with lawlessness. Thus you sinned. So you were cast wounded from the mountain of God, and the cherub brought you out from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Your knowledge was corrupted with your beauty. Because of the multitude of your sins, I cast you to the ground. Before kings, I set you forth as an example. Because of the multitude of your sins and the wrongdoings of your trade, you desecrated your sanctuaries. Therefore, I will bring fire from your midst, which will devour you, to turn you into ashes upon your land in the sight of all who see you. All who know you among the nations shall groan over you. You destroyed yourself and shall be present no more forever. So what king could this be? He's in the paradise of God with the cherub, that's an angel in the presence of God, on the holy mountain of God. He was created blameless, but later sin was found in him. He's cast down. He's involved with the sin of pride, and ultimately he will be devoured by fire. And uh, uh, Origen, uh, I'll, in, uh, I'll, I'll post this in the notes, a quote from Origen, but he says, look, this can't possibly apply to any human king. This is, this is obviously a reference to Satan, just like the passage in Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter 14 was. And this is from uh, Nicene Fathers, volume 4, pages 258 and 260, talks about that. Uh, <clears throat> I don't want this just to be a, a, a curiosity or history lesson about where did Satan come from. I think it's important for us to know who Satan is, where he came from. Is generally considered to be an angel who was with God in the presence of God, who sinned, got involved in the sin of pride, and was cast out of heaven down to the earth, just like Jesus said, and as it says in Isaiah chapter 14. Well, why is it important for us to know about Satan? He's our enemy. Anyone who is involved in a great contest, whether it's a military battle or even a sports battle, if you're up against a great enemy, you better study your enemy and know his tactics and know what he tends to do and how to defeat him, how to be victorious. In, uh, in Hebrews it says, we don't have a high priest who, who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but, he, but Jesus talks about him. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet was without sin. So Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. He was fully human. He was also tempted in every way that we are. In Luke chapter, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is tempted three times by, by Satan. And when he is tempted, how does he respond when he's facing temptation? He was tempted in all points just like we are. Let's follow his example when we're tempted if we want to learn how to defeat Satan. Three times when Jesus was tempted, he came back and said, It is written. It is written. It is written. It is written. And then it says that Satan left him to come back and wait for a more opportune time. When Satan is coming after us, the best thing we can do is to get into the Scripture. If Satan is coming after you for pride or bitterness or lack of forgiveness or lust, dig into the Scriptures, read them, recite them, quote them back. That's what Jesus did when he was attacked. 
See, important for us to know the Word of God, to know all the Word of God, and to study it so that we can be equipped when we're being attacked and tempted by Satan. Of course, it said that Satan left Jesus at that time to wait for a more opportune time. From that, we learn that if we beat Satan today, he's just going to wait to try to hit us tomorrow and see if we're going to be weak tomorrow. So we have to defeat him every single day that he comes after us. Amen. We need to see Satan the way that Peter did. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, let's start reading in verse 6. Peter says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So we have a picture, one picture of Satan in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, he is like, he's a giant serpent or a dragon that's fiery red, that has seven heads and ten horns. A very disturbing creature. And he casts a third of the stars down to the earth. Here's the picture he's likened to a lion. And it says, He walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Who does Satan want to devour? Each and every one of us. If you ever watch videos of lions that are stalking their prey, they're very patient, they're very quiet, they wait in the bushes, and they wait for the perfect opportunity to pounce. They'll wait for the, the gazelle to be distracted or a young one to be away from his parents, to be isolated from the herd so that he can pounce. And Peter says that we need to be vigilant all the time, just like you would be walking through the jungle knowing that you're being stalked by a man-eating dangerous lion. Uh, so we need to be Staying with the pack, being close to our brothers and sisters, confessing our sin, helping each other out too. That's an, another uh, thing. Uh, Jesus says when we pray, in, in Luke 11, he gives the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that he says, he says, ask every day, give us today our daily bread. So obviously this is a pray. You're not saying give me what, the bread for the week. He said, give me today my daily bread. This is a prayer you can be praying every day. And he says to pray, he says, say these words when you pray, deliver us from the evil one. Do you pray every day, like Jesus said, deliver us, Father in heaven, deliver us today from Satan. Deliver me and deliver us from Satan. We need to be praying about this. That's what Jesus said. Pray to deliver us. God will deliver us from Satan. God will help us out. We need the, the grace, the help of God to deliver us from Satan. Uh, we need to be vigilant. We need to be using the scriptures when we're attacked. Uh, one of the scariest things about Satan is that he enters people. Uh, it talked about this in the account of Judas. It says that in, in John chapter 13 and Luke 22, 
around the time of the Passover, it says that Satan entered Judas. Well, can Satan enter anybody? Satan enters people. I mean, it's bad enough he's a lion, he's a snake, he's an armed man, but he also enters people at the same time. That's maybe the most disturbing thing about Satan is he wants to get inside of us. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to close in Ephesians 4. Let's say we're going to close in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. How about we'll say that? <laughs> Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. If you want to be prepared for the spiritual battle, one of the greatest sections of Scripture, I think, is Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. That's what it's all about. Now, people think of Ephesians 5 as a great place to turn to learn about marriage, but this is actually part of a discussion about the spiritual battle that we're in, the battle between light and darkness and what we have to do if we're going to be, uh, if we're going to be making it in the end. This, 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 Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is all about the spiritual battle that we're in. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, let's start reading in verse 25. It says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are, all, we are members of one another. Verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So, he says, don't give place to the devil. What is he talking about here? I think this devil wants a place in our hearts. He'll take anything, anything he can get. He wants some room in your heart. He'll take the, the three-bedroom condo in your heart if he can get it, but he'll take a broom closet and work from there if he can get that too. Satan wants room in your heart. How does Satan get room in your heart? It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So, he's talking about here telling the truth and dealing with anger in, in, in your heart, in your life. He goes and talks about other sins too. The Satan wants to get some little foothold. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's unrighteous anger. <clears throat> Verse 20, let's continue. Verse 28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who is in need. Let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So I think that's what you have to do. If you want to make sure, I want, my, I want the inside of my heart to be like Teflon. There's no room. There's, nothing sticks. Okay? There's no room. There's no, there's no closet. There's no foothold for Satan to operate from. That's what he's looking for. He wants an end. If there's some bitterness, if there's from corrupt speech, anger, uh, uh, disunity, lying, deceit, 
stealing, coveting, any of these things. Satan's looking for a foothold in your heart that he can expand operations from there. One of the things that really, really puzzled me about this, it says, in verse 26, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath nor give place to the devil. So, now I'm used to it. I memorized it, I think, in the NIV where it says, In your anger do not sin. Here it says, Be angry and do not sin. Actually, it goes back. It's a quote from the Septuagint from, from Psalm 4, and that's exactly what it says. It says, When you're on your bed at night to reflect and take inventory of your life and see if you've done anything wrong. This is a good thing to do also, to be checking our hearts at night. And it's and then it says, be angry, but do not sin. So I'm thinking, this, is this two commands or is this one? Is, is anger ever okay or not? And uh, there's an explanation by Lactantius. I'll put it in the notes. And what he said was, it's very interesting. He said to me, he said, uh, you know, is a characteristic of God. God does get angry. And so God put anger in our hearts. He says, however, human anger can fly out of control. And I'm sure some people have seen uh, uh, people who are angry and blow up and just are out of control. He says, that's not the kind of anger that God's telling me. He says, there's a place for anger in our hearts, but you have to have it under control in your life. It can't be unrighteous anger. And it says, the other thing, he says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. So it can't last very long either. You've got to be moderated and it's got to be controlled. So God can be angry at the bad people as much as he wants. He allows us just a little bit of anger and you better clear it up before the next day starts. So this is, this is a good thing to take inventory of our lives at night while we're resting. Uh, Ephesians, the discussion, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, I encourage everyone to read this to be equipped for the spiritual battle between the forces of darkness and light. But he, Paul concludes in verse 10 in chapter 6, he said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're in a war zone. Doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. Doesn't matter if most Christians don't even believe that Satan exists. We are getting pounded and hammered by Satan. And... Paul says, we're not, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against Satan and the forces of evil that are on his side. So I hope that you will open your eyes up. And whenever you're studying the Bible, learn about the spiritual battle. Learn about Satan. Learn about those who have overcome Satan. Learn about the tactics that Jesus used. And we are going to need everything in the armory. We're going to need faith. We're going to need prayer, praying to God to help us to, to deliver us from the evil one. We're going to need scripture so we can quote back, with a, hit back Satan with the sword of the spirit when we're being attacked. But uh, uh, we, we need to understand this. The Satan is very, very important for us to understand. We are under attack by Satan, that we have been liberated from the household of the strong man.
But he wants to take us back. And uh, this is going to be a battle to the end. Amen.